Well, it's good to see you. How is everyone this morning? Doing well, good. I'm glad that you all are here. As Jason mentioned early, parents, if you're in visiting uh, your students or your children, uh, we welcome you. We're glad that you're with us, but it's a great day to worship together. Uh, today is going to be the end of our existing series as we prepare to start a new series uh, next week that's going to take us really pretty much through October and November. And, and just as a quick, uh, I guess, teaser for that series, uh, we've really spent some time off and on throughout this year going back to this theme of promises, right? To, to understand the promises of God and to understand how we respond to God's promises and how do we stand upon them in this life today. And, and as we begin to transition into the fall, that's something we're going to go back to. Uh, we've been talking about the devoted life and really been uh, exploring how do we demonstrate our devotion to the promises of God in this context in our church. But what we're going to see next is how do we take these promises to our community and to our world, right? How do we engage in the opportunities that are around us here locally? And then how do we engage in different cultures and different settings all across the world? And what we're going to discover and continue to go back to is a reminder that the promises from God are really for all people. And so how do we pursue that and how do we live that out? So I invite you to come back uh, next week as we get started on that series. Uh, but first, today, we're going to wrap up the existing series, and there is so much to cover. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up reading uh, this final paragraph that we've been going through uh, over the last six weeks or so, and we're going to focus on this last verse. And so picking up chapter 2, starting in verse 42, we're going to read the whole paragraph and then focus in on verse 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Verse 47 is our focal verse this morning. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, so uh, the way I want to tackle verse 47 today is really to focus on what we see revealed here is the work of the Lord, right? This, this statement that the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. But before we get there, I want to at least briefly address um, my definition of brief, not your definition of brief, the, the, the transition to that as we get to the end of verse 47, that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Because that is a statement that to me kind of encapsulates and summarizes or concludes this description that we've been going through uh, in this last paragraph in terms of the devoted life and, and what the devoted, looks, devoted life looks like. And so I had all these different things I wanted to say about this part and share about this, but we just don't have time. And so I'm going to say it as succinctly as possible. When, when I look at that kind of transition at the first part of verse 47, I see a couple of things that, that encapsulate the devoted life. When we live the devoted life, this life of discipleship, we choose praise over pride, right? And then we also live a life that is above reproach. You, you kind of see that revealed in that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. We choose praise over pride, and we live lives that are above reproach. It, it's, it's very easy, if you think about any church, to have ever had a temptation to stand up and boast about what they were doing. It was this one, wasn't it? I mean, think of all the different things that they could point to and say, look at us, man, we're doing miracles, we're performing signs, we're performing wonders, we're selling our property, look at this generosity, look at all the things that are taking place here. But what do they choose to do? They don't bring glory to themselves, they give glory back 
to God, right? It was this constant state of humility. It was, it was a season of always understanding where recognition was due, right? To give recognition and praise to God. It was a constant state of gratitude. And that's something that has to be evident in our lives, both as individuals and as a church, that we have to choose praise over pride. We never seek to bring glory to ourselves, but risk always redirect that glory to our Father. Right? That's the first thing that I would say. I had a lot more to say, but that's, I'm going to summarize it there. The second thing is, is to live a life above reproach. Do, do you all just find yourself somewhat just uh, amazed at that statement that they were enjoying the favor of all the people? Anybody else enjoying that right now? Right? I mean, that's a remarkable statement, and it should be somewhat of a disclaimer that it doesn't endure, it doesn't continue, right? I mean, it's, we don't have to turn far before we see them brought before governors and officials and thrown in prison and, and facing significant persecution, right? And so our understanding of favor can be challenged here, but that's still an amazing statement to say that they were enjoying the favor of all the people, and, and the, why, the reason I guess I classify that as saying that they lived a life that is above reproach is because reproach means to find fault or blame. And, and so essentially to live a life that is above reproach means nobody can find fault or blame with what you're doing or, or the way that you're living. And so that's a pretty significant statement. You're enjoying the favor of others. Now, that's a very tricky thing to do. And, and there's a lot of nuances there because it's not about pretending to be perfect Right? It's not trying so hard to convince other people that there's nothing wrong with you and you can't ever find fault or blame. It's actually owning your imperfections and being vulnerable to that extent, but, but living your life in such a way that people really can't find any reason to accuse you or to bring blame against you. So how do, how do you do that? Like How do you pursue that? And, and I guess my, my little simple statement for us this morning would be to say, I believe that statement right there points us back to the effectiveness that we've already talked about throughout this series, that this church was radically loving the other. They had a radical love for the neighbor that was constantly on display. And, and the reason I think that plays in here is, have you ever seen somebody just radically demonstrate love to you? Do, you? do you understand how hard it is to criticize and find fault with those people because of the way in which you've received their love? Right? These are the sorts of people that we would mourn if they weren't in our lives, if they weren't near us. I, I think about different examples to try to communicate this, and the one I kept coming back to was our neighbors. Uh, we've been in our house for about 10 years now, a little more than 10 years, and one of the biggest blessings for us are DG and Terry, who live right next door to us. Um, there are numerous ways that they have opened up their homes to us. Their, their children are grown and gone. And so they kind of have this empty nest thing going along, and, and they have said, hey, anytime your kids want to swim, come on over. And we're like, really? And uh, we take full advantage of that. <laughs> and, and it is amazing to have a pool that is practically in your backyard and not have to maintain it. I cannot tell you what a gift that is. And so we're always over there swimming. They bring gifts to our kids during the minor holidays, major holidays. They take care of our dogs when we're out of town. I mean, they are incredible people. Now, hear me. I know they're not perfect. Right? I, I know that there's a lot of things going on in their lives, but because I've been such a recipient of their love, it's hard for me to find fault or blame. I only see favor upon them. I, I, would, I would grieve if they moved away. And, and when we've talked about, should we move? That's been a legitimate part of our conversation, but we would lose DG and Terry. Right? That, that's how we should be as a church. We should have such an overwhelming radical love for the community and the people around us that people are going to say well we know they're not perfect but goodness gracious have we not been recipients 
of their love. It is hard for us to find fault or blame. We would grieve if this church wasn't here and these people weren't here. Right? That's the manifestation of the devoted life. Okay? So, so here's what we have. We now have a conclusion of all these descriptions of the devoted life that we've been unpacking for the last several weeks. Right? The, the devoted life are those who are going, going to live this life of discipleship. We commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. We, we've talked before that for us, this life of discipleship, this, this life of devotion is going to help us grow in our understanding of what it means to be disciples who make disciples, right? That that means we are often investing in the lives of others, and that could be believers and should be non-believers, right? We, we talked early on in this series that when you talk about discipleship, you cannot separate out evangelism. They're not two different things. They are wholly integrated one another. It should take us both to the believer and the non-believer. We've talked about that for us in this context, in our church, when we talk about the elements of discipleship, we're referring to community, teaching, accountability, how those things always need to be present in a meaningful discipleship relationship. We, we've talked about how these things occur in three different arenas for us in corporate worship, like we are right now, how they can occur in Sunday Connects groups that happened before this, and now discipleship groups that we've recently launched. All these things can be found in those arenas. And as we pursue the devoted life, this radical love for the other, this expression of unity that, that we've just put to song is constantly on display. The way that we love one another, that we have radical generosity that is rooted in radical love. It takes us to both the sacred spaces and the intimate spaces, right? The temple courts and in each other's homes. We, we gather around dinner tables. We, we hate together with glad and sincere hearts. We're able to carry ourselves with a joy for every day. We choose praise over pride, and we radically love to the extent that we enjoy the favor of others. This is our work. This is the description of the devoted life, right? What we want to talk about for the rest of this time, though, is how does the Lord respond? Because there's a drastic shift to close this passage, right? And you can see it through the pronouns. Over and over again, it's they, right? They devoted themselves. They did the work. They sold possessions. They ate together, they gathered, and then the Lord. So everything else up to this point has been, here's what we do. Here's our response. Here's our faithfulness. How does the Lord respond to it? What does he do? This is the work of the Lord. And what it says here in verse 47 is he adds to their number daily those who are being saved. This is the work of the Lord here, right? It gives us a picture of what this looks like. And so what I want us to do for the rest of time is to say, of the time that we have here, is what does that look like for us today? If we were to really play this out and say, okay, the Lord's going to add to our number these, these stories of salvation, what does that look like for us? How do we anticipate that? How do we prepare ourselves for that? How, how do we receive it? That's the question that I want us to pursue today. And I want us to do so very intentionally and thoughtfully as we work through different elements of this as we go through these last couple of verses here. And so the, the first thing that I want to say is that this is the work of the Lord. And so part of what we have to do as we have this conversation is maintain in our minds that humility that no matter what we do, ultimately is the Lord that provides these things. And so one of the questions we need to ask is, why does he respond in such a way? And for me, the answer is because this church was found faithful. He sees their devotion, he sees their faithfulness, and he says, I'm going to entrust more to you. I want other people to be shaped and molded by what you're doing here for them to experience and benefit from this devoted life. And so the more we are found faithful, 
I believe, honestly, that God entrusts these sorts of opportunities to us. All right, so what does it look like? Well, if you think about adding to their number those who are being saved, this is where we get our title for this series, Stories, the goal, of tran- the goal of Discipleship, right? That's what we've been referring to. What we're talking about is stories of salvation, right? Lives that are being transformed and changed by this gospel, those who are being saved. What we all know is that when we go through this life, we have a moment or several moments where we have to recognize our own brokenness and choose to surrender to Jesus Christ, and that transforms us. And it brings us the opportunity of salvation. And that's what's taking place here. Salvation is unfolding in this community. Now, what we can deduce from Scripture, and one of the things that I want us to begin to think about, okay, well, what does that look like practically for us, is that that's going to be marked with baptism. Correct? Because what we see taught through Jesus' teachings and through the early church is that when you engage in this this surrender and you decide that you want to be crucified with Christ, that you want to be united with him in his death and be raised to walk in a newness of life and be united with him in his resurrection, when you want to declare your allegiance and your loyalty to him to say that he is Lord, you make that decision publicly known through the ordinance of baptism, right? And so let me just put it very simply. If a church wants to be effective at making disciples, we need to see stories of transformation marked with baptism. I said this to our leaders not too long ago. I honestly don't think we can claim to be effective at making disciples if we don't regularly see stories of transformation marked with baptism. I believe that. Now, let me offer a quick disclaimer or two about how we should uh, process that and, and approach that, right? Here's what you don't do. You don't become so laser beam focused on it that you forget the other part of the Great Commission where Jesus says, teach people to obey everything I've commanded them. Right? If we become just solely fixated on, on making decisions and marking people with baptism, then people die in infancy in their faith. Right? You, you never grow to maturity, and, and that can be very problematic for a church. Yet, if you only focus on the other half and you're only focused on teaching people to obey what Christ has commanded then you're a church that dies slowly because you become so inwardly focused, you forget that our call is to go and actually see stories of salvation take place. So we're talking about all of it. We're talking about a holistic approach here. But a lot of times I feel, and I don't know if this is your experience too, that a lot of times we can be hesitant to really make baptism a focus. And why is that? And and I can't help but feel like, honestly, if if we just kind of get to the, the inner part of it, it's fear. Like, think about it on an individual level. If, if we actually start saying, yeah, if I want to truly make disciples, I should be able to, to lead people to Jesus who want to get baptized and then continue in a relationship, that's scary, isn't it? Because that might mean that you actually have to engage people that, that don't believe in Christ, have uncomfortable conversations that society say is taboo, like leave people alone about their religion. It means to maybe even actually ask them to make a decision, all these things, that's fairly terrifying because that opens you up to rejection. And if you're opening yourself up to rejection, that's going to make you feel like a failure. So it's scary. So a lot of times we're just like, ah, let's just kind of push that one aside. And we do it as a church, not just us. I'm saying corporately is, is a kind of a cultural expression of Christianity, right? We, we kind of hope baptism becomes like a byproduct. If we have good music and we have great teaching, then maybe baptisms will happen along the way. Right? And we just kind of we just kind of talk about it that way. Let's not make it a focus because what if it doesn't happen? Then are we going to feel like failures? And we're afraid 
of failure. And I think about all that, and I say, forget that. We should be the most fearless people on the planet. So absolutely, we should make it a focus. Absolutely, we should be praying for it. Absolutely, we should be expecting it. And absolutely, we should be honest with ourselves that if it's not happening, then we need to increase our effectiveness in making disciples. So that's part of what we should anticipate as a church family, right? That we should see stories of transformation that are marked in baptism. So if that is part of something that we want to make a focus, then what I want to work through this morning is, okay, how do we appropriately uh, condition our posture to pursue those things as the Lord works them out according to his time and his plan? And there are a couple of things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the urgency that we should have, how we should set appropriate expectations in how we pursue this, as well as the avenues that we're creating here to pursue it and then the dreams that we can have for it, okay? So very quickly, the urgency. Um, I've shared this before from this stage. I don't know how many of you remember it, and I don't know how many of you were here that one time I did it, so let me, let me reiterate this. But when I was going through the interview process to be brought here to come in view of a call to be the next pastor a couple years ago, um, one of the things that I was provided was a demographic survey of this neighborhood a two-and-a-half-mile radius around this campus. And that survey revealed that there's about 54,000 people that live within two-and-a-half miles of this church campus. And based on trends and other demographic research, you can deduce that about 20% of the people living within two-and-a-half miles would say they don't believe in God. Okay, so if, if you're quick at math, I did it earlier, that's about 10,800 people. Can I, can I say that again? Two and a half miles from where we're sitting, 10,800 people who would say they don't believe in God. Throw in different religions, throw in nominal expressions of faith, the number is higher. What's our plan? What's our strategy? Open our doors and hope they fall in here? Have a cool enough website? What's our plan? A church that's going to truly engage the culture today is going to be a church that says we're going to go and make, not just invite people to come and see, right? And, and the reality is, is I've used that number before, the 10,000, and yes, it's a literal application, and we do corporately need to think, how are we going to engage this community? But it's also somewhat metaphorical for our own lives, isn't it? The point is, is that there are people all around us who need Jesus, and my hope is, is that you're seeing that and be reminded of that at work and in your neighborhoods, at your schools, wherever the Lord would lead you, because I could also tell you stories of the sort of things that are facing my neighbors. Stories of people who would de outright declare and have to me that they're agnostic. That if there is a God, he's cruel because of the pain that they've gone through in their life. People who have, who have told us when we were out selling chocolate that they're atheists. Some of the kindest people in our neighborhood but would say, no, I have no place for that in my life. People of different religions, people that have gone through serious bouts of depression, people who have been wounded by the church, people that are now facing old age and medical, concern, medical concerns, all literally within arm's reach of me. And I guarantee you they're within arm's reach of you. What's our plan? What is, what is our response? We have to have something, and it begins with having an urgency to have our hearts broken the way that God's heart breaks for these people. Right, And so here's a good way to test that urgency. I've asked you this before. Let me do it again. Somebody asked it of me. It was incredibly convicting, and so now I'm passing that favor along to you. Um, but he, he told me one time over lunch, a good friend of mine, he said, okay, let's say God answers all your prayers, 
everything you've prayed for today or this weekend, whatever. He's answered all your prayers. He says yes to all of it. What are you receiving? Think of all the things that would be affirmed. Here's the question. How many people came into the kingdom? How many people are you regularly praying for, pleading that God would save their hearts and their souls? That's a good test of our urgency. So we have to understand that there's an urgency. But here's what I really wanted to dive into, expectations. Because it's easy to get up on a stage and start talking about 10,000 people and create a sense of urgency, but still have all of us go, "Uh, how do I do that? And, And what are you really expecting me to do? And this conversation about expectations, honestly, is not even just applied to the Lord adding to their number, but really almost everything we've talked about in terms of community and relationship and all this different stuff, okay? So I I want us to to kind of narrow it down for a little bit to say, how do I actually make space for this in my life, okay? And and the way I want to do this is by looking at both kind of an anthropological side as well as a biblical side. So uh, let me introduce you to Robin Dunbar, okay? Robin Dunbar is well known for Dunbar's number, and I'm going to get into that here in a second. He's a British anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist, head of social and evolutionary neuroscience research at University of Oxford. Okay, I had to write that down because I couldn't remember all that. Uh, So he's kind of smart, all right? And uh, if you go home and you Google Dunbar's number, you'll find a lot of different information. I, I read a lot of different articles about Dunbar, settled in on this one that I thought was really well summarized. It was written by Mariah Konnikova in 2014 for The New Yorker. And, and she kind of gives you a summarization of his work. Okay, so here's, here's the summary. In the 1980s, there's this development in anthropology called the social brain hypothesis. And the idea is, is that if you look in primates, you can see that the size of their brain might uh, indicate the size of their social group, right? That primates have larger brains because they're often living in larger social networks. And so Dunbar looks at this hypothesis and says, well, I bet I can apply that to humans. And, and begins to kind of develop this theory that you can look at the frontal lobe and then come up with this formula that compares it to the total volume of the brain and the average size of social groups and come up with a number. And essentially what he's trying to prove is that your brain can only handle so many relationships. So what is that number? How many relationships can you actually have? And he comes up with a number 150. Okay, 150 is kind of the max number of relationships that your brain can actually handle, that you would actually have some level of influence on that person's life. And so he begins then to also continue his work to break it down into smaller increments because there are these different tiers of relationships, but your brain can only handle so many along the way. And so he kind of comes up with a summary, and there's a lot of different ways that people have summarized his work. I brought a couple of different slides to help demonstrate this. Here's the first one. The smallest circle of relationships that you have, the closest relationships, would be about five. This would be your inner circle, okay? Now, I should offer a disclaimer. He acknowledges there's probably variation from one person to the next, right? Your extroverts, maybe it's a little bit higher. Introverts, maybe it's a little bit lower. This is just kind of a, a general average. So your inner circle, you've got about five people. Next level up the people that you turn to for sympathy would be around 15, kind of the max number. These are the people that are going to know you, they're going to be there for you in hard times, you're there for them. But beyond that, they start to kind of diminish in the strength of your relationship, which takes you to the level of 50, right? Then you have this circle of people that you would maybe consider your close friends. If you're you're having a party and you're thinking about who all to invite, you're probably drawn from this list, okay? But then 150 is your level of casual friendships, right? This would be 
kind of the largest network you can have. Now, you can see there, he, he takes it a little bit further, saying that 500 would be acquaintances, right? At 500, this is where you've got people where you can't always remember their name, right? Because they're not always in your, your regular interactions, but you have met them before. 1,500 is the maximum number where you can actually put names and faces together, okay? So there are other ways to describe it. There's one other slide that kind of uses some terminology to define each level. Five being kin or your family, 15, your super family or extended family, 50 would be your clan, 150 would be your tribe, okay? So he, he comes up with these numbers, and now he's been testing, and it's pretty remarkable. So one of the things he tested out, and he goes and he looks at all this uh, data related to hunting and gathering societies, where there was still census data, and you know what he found? That the average hunting and gathering society clustered together in about 148 people. He started looking at the ways that armies have orchestrated their, their troops. He looked at the Roman Empire, he looked at Spain in the 16th century, he looked at Russia in the 20th century, and most of their companies were divided up in around 150 and then broken into smaller units of 10 to 15. Uh, he looked at uh, experiential data even today. Uh, he started looking at how we communicate and relate to with one another with Christmas cards and phone calls. How many do you receive? How would you categorize these levels of friends? And these numbers continue to bear out. Here's this point. You have a certain limitation with social relationships, period. Your brain can only handle so many. So I was reading through this, and the implications are pretty significant when you start thinking about church and you start thinking about discipleship and relationships. And I started wondering, do we see any evidence of this in the scripture? Like, do, do we see this play out in any other way biblically? And here's what I found, and it's, it's a, admittedly somewhat of a loose connection, but one that I still found to be somewhat thought-provoking. Let's think about what Jesus did. If he's sitting there going, okay, I need to make sure that the story of the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. How am I going to invest in people to make sure that happens? Let's, let's work backwards, okay? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that after Jesus was died, resurrected, and began to ascend and appear to people, Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people. Okay, that's the largest number that we have referenced in the scripture of Jesus' appearances. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 1, right after the ascension, you've got this first church, the first group of believers that are sitting there waiting to figure out who needs to replace Judas and all these different things. And it's referenced there that Peter stands up before them, a group of about 120. If you go to Jesus' ministry, and he decides to entrust this message and this proclamation of the kingdom, Luke chapter 10 tells us that he sends out 72 and then if you go to Luke 6 and throughout the Gospels, he called 12. And many scholars would actually argue that he had an inner circle. That because of the references to who he allowed to come with him when he raised Jairus' daughter, uh, what, who was present with him during the transfiguration in Gethsemane, it's referred to that he only allowed Peter, James, and John to come with him. And so Peter, James, and John are often referred to this inner circle. So Jesus had 3, 12, 72, 120, 500. Somewhat uh, thought-provoking, at least, in my estimation. So here's the implications for us, okay? Here's what I'm trying to get us to see. When you hear me get up here and talk about 10,000 people, I'm not expecting you to go knock on 10,000 doors. When I start talking about community in this church, I'm not expecting all of us to be best friends and you to invite everyone in here around the dinner table. Because here's the reality. On a Sunday morning, we average somewhere between 250, 300 people. So you know what that means? 
That means you're, you've got a lot of people here that are just acquaintances. That means it's not unusual for you on a Sunday morning to call, uh, come in here, cross halls with people and go, what's their name? Because that's beyond your one, your, your brain literally can't process it. I, I guarantee you, you all have had that experience, right? And yet, it also means that there's breakdowns of smaller groups amongst this church. And a lot of times, you know what kills community is the fear of cliques. Churches are like, oh, we can't have cliques, we can't have, you know, everybody's got to be invited. And that actually kind of prevents community from being fostered. We need to say it's okay to have smaller relationships within a church family. What's not okay is if people never find one, and we don't create space for people to join one. That's what's not okay. But we should expect smaller groups to exist within this experience, okay? So here's, here's the expectation. If I could summarize it for you uh, before we get into the avenues of it, here's what I would say. If we're truly going to make disciples, it's going to happen at those smaller arenas, your five to your 15, okay? It starts with your family. That's your five. And I realize people define family in different ways. And I know our families look different. It could just be a group of friends. could be a broken family. But the five closest people, one of the greatest <clears throat> tragedies that has taken place is people stepping over their families to go do ministry. It starts in the home. You want to know who to make disciples of? You want to know who to pour into? What kind of? Your family. I love this quote that is often attributed to Mother Teresa, though I don't think she actually said it. Um, it says, if you want to bring peace to the world, go home and love your family. It's on our mail. We might need to put an asterisk next to her name. But either way, it's a good thought. It starts with your family. Every time Paul writes a letter, not every time, but most of the time he writes a letter, he talks about the gospel. Here's how it should change you. Here's how it should change. Here's how it's changed me. Oh, by the way, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, children. It starts at home. Our church will only be as strong as we are investing in our own families. It starts there. Now, the greater question is who's your 12? I'm going to go with 12 as opposed to 15 because I'm going with Jesus over Dunbar, if y'all are okay with that, right? And it's, and it's metaphorical, right? It could be more, it could be slightly less, but what's that next level for you? Who's in your life that you turn to, to that sort of intimate relationship? And here's what I want to challenge you on. Here's the expectation. That group should lead you to the believer and the non-believer. You need to have space for both. If you're going to effectively make disciples and grow as a disciple, you need people that can pour into you, that you can turn to, and you need to be pouring into other people that don't know the hope of Jesus. So when you write out your 12, it should have a mix. So who's in it? And the summarization then is that the way that we effectively do this is we give more of ourselves to the few rather than falling into the trap of giving less of ourselves to the more which is what we often try to do. We feel the pressure. We need to have this person over for dinner. Oh, gosh, we got to do this. Well, we're going to find time because we got piano and we got soccer. we got all these other things. I don't know if we're going to have this. And we feel the stress of trying to make friends and reach out to all these different people. What you really have to do is stop and say, who's the 12? Who gets our first yes? Let's give more of ourselves to these folks rather than fall and run ragged into this trap of giving less of ourselves to more. That's the expectation. Invest in your family. Who are your 12? Okay, now, quickly, the avenue to do this for us. Here's the reality. Um, it, I, I personally 
don't feel that it's enough for me to stand on a, on a, on a stage and preach about concepts and philosophy. I can, and maybe that's all I'm supposed to do, is to do that and then just hope that magically these things begin to appear. But I don't believe that's my responsibility because I honestly believe there's going to be a day that I stand before my creator and I give an account for my life. And that account is going to include how did I shepherd his church? And so I refuse to just say, well, I preached. Right? So we have to. I feel a tremendous burden and responsibility to at least create avenues for this to be pursued. I know it may look different for all of us. And you may experience these relationships with different mixtures of groups and different people but I believe we at least as a church have to say, here's how you find this here, right? This experience, that gives you your larger connection of your acquaintances and your tribe, the 150. Sunday Connect leads you into the clan group, right? This, this gr close group of friends that you can hopefully foster. But our discipleship groups is where we find the 12 and the 5 really growing. That's where we really begin to live this out. And so what am I hoping uh, occurs within those discipleship groups that we've launched? community teaching accountability, right? Let's go backwards. Accountability, right? There are going to be moments in your life where you say, I've got to work on these things, and I need your support. I need your help with my problem with lust, with my problem with anger. I need your prayers for my marriage. I need your prayers for my children. Whatever it is, you, you need accountability. But you also need to hold each other accountable to this call to make disciples. Who are you investing in? Who are you reaching out? Accountability to be trained and equipped to know how to share your faith and what to do when somebody actually wants to have that conversation. Teaching. We need to be in a constant state of intimate relationship, learning what it means to read God's word together. Right? This isn't us talking about Beth Moore or David Platt or, or Francis Chan or whatever. It, let's just read God's word and see how it changes us. Community. Let's, go, let's quit being a name and a, what was your, what, where, did we, where did we meet again? Let's get beyond that sort of thing where we're no longer just a number, but we're actually a name and people know our stories. We know what it means to create community. We know what it means to invest in community. That has to happen in those intimate levels. And we provide it in discipleship groups because of two huge reasons. Because they are the most reproducible and the most relational. Okay, you know what I mean by that? If we're truly going to make disciples, then you have to be able to be equipped to do it on your own, right? If our only answer is come to church, right, if, that, if all we ever do is give you corporate worship and Sunday connect, then that's all we've equipped you with. Oh, oh, you're interested in Jesus? Come to church. Now listen, please invite people to church as much as you can. But you have to be trained to say, oh, you want to know more about Jesus? Let's go grab coffee. Uh, actually, come meet with my group of friends. We meet once a week, and we just read the scriptures together and talk about our questions. You want to come do that? Because here's what you're going to find in today's climate. A lot of people have been wounded by church, and they're not interested. But they'll go grab coffee. And so have you been trained? Have you been equipped to know how to do these things? The discipleship groups are intentionally simple. They are intentionally saying, you, you can do this as well. You don't need a seminary training. You don't need to be a gifted teacher. No, you, you know how to now offer community teaching and accountability to somebody else. It's reproducible. But it's also relational, highly relational. Let me, let me be as clear as I possibly can. Transformation will not happen without relationship. Transformation doesn't occur through programs and events. It occurs through relationship. So we have to be willing to intentionally invest and create space for those relationships to occur.
And that's true if we're trying to give somebody an opportunity to see the hope that they have in Jesus, or we're trying to grow along brothers and sisters in Christ and our own identity as disciples. It's got to be relational. So we have this avenue, and, it, and that's why. There are so many other nuances to it. I don't have time to get into this today. But let, let me close with this. Let's say we, we capture the urgency, we move forward with the right expectations, we embrace these avenues. What can we dream? What can we expect? Let, let's think this out for a little bit. If we live the devoted life and the Lord decides to add to our number as a church, what, what do we picture? Let me tell you what not to picture first. Don't picture a mega church with multiple services. It's not in our dreams, okay? And part of the reason is because of everything we just talked about. If discipleship occurs at these smaller, intimate levels, and we can only handle so much relationally, why in the world would we grow, grow it to such a point that it makes it more difficult to make disciples? Because there's more masses and more structure and more institution. That is not in our dreams. Don't envision satellite campuses. For me, my personal conviction, the gospel is meant to be given away, not branded. If I'm having to be simulcast in and streamed in, then I'm doing a poor job of discipleship, is my personal opinion. Right? So don't, don't picture those things. Here's the other thing I want you to picture. Don't picture a comfortable, convenient faith. This stuff is hard. And, and I can tell you by experience, it weighs on me. For the last three to four years, I've been burdened to try to do this in my life. And I would love to tell you that if you just have the resolve that all of a sudden people just start confessing to receive Christ as soon as you bring it up. And it's just so easy to start doing it. It is so hard. And it takes sacrifice. And it takes some hard decisions to say, yeah, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do this. And it's not comfortable. So let me just tell you, church, if you want to be a part of this, you're going to be challenged. This is not uh, uh, an experience that we're going to just consume and critique together. No, we're going to challenge one another, and we're going to try to go out, and we're going to go and make, not just come and see. All right? So don't expect comfortable, convenient faith. Here's what I want you to dream. Here's what I believe can take place. I believe if we respond to this, what we can dream about is dozens of churches being planted as a result of our expression of devotion to Christ. I believe we can dream of hundreds of groups being started throughout this city. I believe we can dream of thousands of baptisms taking place as a result of your faithfulness and your work and your courage. That's what I believe. If I were to break it down, if I were to just say, okay, let's, let's just think of step one. I'll tell you what step one is. This is what I've shared with the staff. If we can work towards implementing these discipleship groups along with everything else we've already talked about, these other arenas, that if by the end of the year we have 20 to 25 groups that eat, sleep, and breathe and understand the DNA of what we're talking about here, that's a good first step. If we can do that, that's a good first step. Right? And what I believe we'll see along the way and what I want you to continue to dream of is stories of transformation. Let me close with this story. I know we're running long, but sorry, i got to get this out. Here's a story that I want you to imagine. This is a true story that took place uh, with somebody within our congregation. Um, good friend of mine, and he's asked that I keep his name and the other names in the story confidential, so I'm just going to refer to him as my friend. A couple years ago, my, my friend has actually been going through a season of life that many of you could probably relate to in the sense that it has been incredibly difficult. You know those seasons where it just feels like it just keeps mounting and you would rather give up and just retreat and rest rather than actually press in and work? 
That's the season he's been in. But he didn't decide to retreat. He, he decided to press in. And he uh, was challenged by several other men in this church a couple years ago where they were learning what does it mean to go out and share this gospel. They were being trained and equipped on how to share, and they were going out into the community, and they were meeting new people. And, and this kind of opened his eyes to what it means to kind of live with that courage. And so what he did is he took that training and said, I'm going to do this at work. He works at a college campus. And he said, I have the opportunity to meet with so many incoming freshmen. I'm going to take time with every incoming freshman I meet to sit down and hopefully share the gospel with them. And so he started doing it. And on one particular day, he was getting ready to travel uh, for the university. They were getting ready to travel out of state. And so he, he was trying to get all of his stuff together. It was kind of that closing chaos before you get on the bus or get on the plane, whichever one he was taking. And he had just a little bit of time when the student comes walking into his office mistakenly, trying to get upstairs but couldn't figure out how to get up there. And so they have the kind of exchange. He's like, well, this is the way you need to go. And, and as he tries to redirect the student, he says, oh, by the way, we still need to set our appointment for us to meet. And the student says, well, can you meet right now? And my friend's impulse was, no. <laughs> like, I've got so much to do to get out of town. But he felt the Lord say, no, take your time with him. He said, sure, let's go ahead and have the conversation right now. And so he started asking, you know, how's your freshman year going? How, how's things going? And this student opened up and said, it's been really difficult told him a story about how earlier that morning he had gone into this, this venue with a bunch of students and he sat down and this girl that he sat down next to actually scooted away from him and how that made him feel um, very rejected. This, this student apparently struggled with some hygiene things, had really long hair and he interpreted that as this other girl being pretty repulsed by his appearance. And so he was confiding in my friend saying, but the reason I grow my hair out is because of this birth defect and he pulled his hair back and he had this birth effect with his ear. And he said, I don't know what else to do about it, but I'm ashamed of it. He started opening up about his father saying that his dad had verbally abused him most of his life, and that just two weeks before, he had discovered that his dad had a whole other family that he didn't know about. And so he'd actually tried to reach out to one of these other children, and, and that person met him with anger and rage, and was like, don't ever call me again. And so everywhere he turned, he was experiencing some level of pain and rejection. So he opened up my friend and he said, I'm just struggling with depression as a result of all of this. So my friend is overwhelmed and is sitting there going, I don't know what to say. And in that moment, he says that he hears the Lord telling him, you're right, you don't know what to say, but I do. Tell him what I've told him. And he asks his permission, he says, can I just share a story with you that maybe can give you some hope? And he begins to share the gospel as he'd been trained and equipped to share it. And as he begins to explain how Jesus loves us in this brokenness and he gives us this hope, he asks this young student, he goes, where do you see your life? Are you in this relationship with your creator or are you struggling still in brokenness? And the student's eyes filled up with tears. He said, I'm right there in that brokenness. And my friend said, we well, don't have to be. You can receive this good news in this moment. You can pray to have it right now if you want to. And he said, absolutely. And they prayed to receive Christ right there in his office in that moment. Amen? Amen. And it didn't stop there. For the last several years, he's continued to meet with this student. Now, I'd like to tell you that all of his issues just disappeared, but y'all know that's not how this works. But this story of this, this friend of mine who's gone through his own battles but choosing to embrace what it means to make disciples and make the space open and share the hope of the gospel, and it led to a story of transformation. That's what I want us to dream. Because what we need to be reminded of, church, is that this gospel has been 
sufficient for thousands of years. This is the story that invaded the homes in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is the gospel that has endured every tragedy of human history, every mark on our past that was never uh, always revealing that it wasn't enough. This is the gospel that continues to cry out even today for the devoted followers to go out into the world and sing into the darkness. Yes, there is a light. There is hope. This is the gospel that has lit the church to flame. This is a gospel, as we said earlier, will never kneel, it will never faint, and so it needs to always be on our lips as we give ourselves fully to it to live out the devoted life and then sit back and watch the work of the Lord and see him move. And if we do that, we can continue to give him praise both now and forevermore to give praise to our King of Kings. Let that be our response each and every day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We're grateful for an opportunity to once again see the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we, we confess that this is not an easy task, and as a church, we're, we're doing our best to come up with ways and, and opportunities and avenues for us to pursue it, God, but we admit that it is not our plan that will make it successful. It is only your spirit. It is only through your strength, and so God, we pray that your spirit would Awaken our hearts and continue to guide us and continue to ignite us as we seek to glorify you. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for this gospel. And now we ask that you would receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.